Hello and welcome to episode 74 of Herpetological Highlights with your hosts Tom Major and Ben Marshall. And today, we, well this by week, we are going to be doing a bit of a mixed bag really. Um, we had a question that was pretty cool that we wanted to spend a bit of time answering. And then we also thought, what group have we neglected? We're always just leaning towards snakes. Whenever we get left to our own devices, we seem to end up talking about snakes. And uh, also a lot of our Patreon requests, although the most recent one was Night Lizards, that was a lizard, but I feel like a a lot of our Patreon requests are kind of disproportionately geared towards snakes. So we thought we'd show a bit of love to another group of animals, and that is the salamanders. So we've got a new species of salamander and also some kind of cool, well, I don't know what you'd call it. It's like... um, some sort of savage adaptations of a salamander in particular environments. Would you think, you think that's fair to say? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely fair to say. Yeah, I mean, we try, yeah, trying to mix things up. I feel like if there's one group we neglect more than salamanders, it's sea turtles. Sea turtles, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can't, we've probably done one episode on sea turtles ever. Yeah, probably. Turtle tides. <laughs> turtle tides. I don't know. It. We did. Yeah, no, that was that's. I think that has been it. Was that the one? That was the one where the uh, the mystery surrounding where baby sea turtles go and what they do was kind of yeah solved with a little simulation modeling. study. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty sweet. Did you know there was actually a um, leatherback turtle sighted off the coast of North Wales last week? Yes, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, apparently they're common around these waters this time of year. It's not new; they're just very rarely seen. Huh. They're coming in because, I mean, the abundance of jellyfish is insane right now. I've been snorkeling a couple of times recently and, yeah, there's lots of little... I mean, jellyfish abundance and diversity, at least to someone who's, you know, unfamiliar with the uh, gelatinous the finer species. Points. Yeah. yeah. Um, it seems like there's it's tons like of different ones. a big floating buffet then. Yeah, and, like, you know, we get the huge barrel jellyfish, which are massive. I mean, they're, like, easily... 18 inches across so i can see that for loggerhead sea turtles who are into their gelatinous food stuffs it must be a bit of a bounty so leatherbacks. what did i say loggerhead loggerhead damn yeah no definitely not loggerbacks loggerbacks yeah that's the one now loggerheads are like <laughs> mediterranean i don't think they'll be coming up here they're like africa mediterranean aren't they but yeah certainly leatherbacks which are also the biggest sea turtles and just generally the freakiest looking they don't look like anything else yeah yeah, they look um, they look prehistoric. They do. To see one of them would be unbelievable. But um, yeah, the guy, the most recent article that came out, the guy who'd seen it was like um, he ran he runs uh, sport fishing tours from a place called Ross on Sea, which is like maybe half an hour from here. And uh, I mean, he's a guy who's been running these tours his whole life, and he's only ever seen the one turtle. So I think uh, the reality is that the chances for the rest of us are probably quite slim. But nevertheless, the photos were awesome. And just to kind of think that they're out there is sweet. Yeah, just to know. That's, that, that counts for a lot. I am really excited. Although I can't remember the name of them, I really like leatherbacks. And uh, we should actually have a look and try and do an episode on them. I think that'd be pretty sweet. I don't know. We just spent two minutes talking about them. I think they have had their due. Is that it now? Yeah, fair. That's it. Yeah, that's Never it for again. another year. Yeah. Yeah. Snakes. <laughs> snakes next by week. <laughs> So yeah, without further ado, I reckon we should get into the uh, the question that we were asked. So um, oh, you're doing question first, are you? Well, I oh. don't. Oh, oh. I, well, ew, we could do, or we could not do. I don't mind. Do you want to do? Do you want to do the? Do you want to do Sally's first and do the question at the end? And then 
I thought we'd do salamander salamander question. Okay, all right. Well, let's so do it mix that it way. up with having species of bi week in the middle of the episode. Whoa. Okay, that's a little bit intense. I yeah. like it. Keep you on your toes when editing. Okay. All right. Right on. Let's do it. So. Uh, so what do we have first? We have from the American. What is it? Middle. I do, I just have middle. I don't have the full. Ah, the American Midland Naturalist, published in. 2016, Cannibalistic Morph Tiger Salamanders in Unexpected Ecological Contexts uh, by McLean, Stockwell and Mushet. Uh, Yeah, so cannibalistic salamanders. You thought these salamanders were lovely, peace-loving, little, cute, slimy, slimy, mud-dwelling creatures. No. No, there's some brutes in amongst them. Um, So, Bard... Tiger salamanders, Abistoma, what is that? Mavortium? Yeah. Mavortium? Mavortium? Mavortium. Mavortium. Oh, that sounds better that way. Yeah, we'll go with Mavortium. Sounds more grandiose, doesn't it? Like, Abistoma Mavortium. Sounds Mm. like something Harry Potter might say in response to uh, some Death Eaters or something. Something, some sort of magical malarkey. I don't yeah, know. I've given away how little I know about Harry Potter there, but um, he's that magician dude. Yeah, math magician. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're adorable looking creatures. Can we just say before that before we get into their like the fact that they can be utterly horrible? They look pretty cool. The you know the cute base, on the outside. Yeah. Very stripy. Uh, dark sort of slaty grey black with orange highlights, yeah? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Very bold. And very endearing, smiley. Well, now, see, that's the trick, isn't it? Because uh, a regular salamander smiling, he's just going to look like a little little sort of gummy salamander. Uh, these guys smiling, you're going to see some pretty elongated, recurved and enlarged uh, vomerine teeth. So that's a set of teeth, not right at the very front of the mouth, set back a little bit, but on the top. I think on the top. Pretty positive it's on the top. Yes. If those pictures are orientated the way I think they are. And sort of there's this, this they've been known about for a good while, that's for sure, but the sort of accepted logic was this cannibalistic morph would only really come about when there are a lot of salamanders in the location. So we talk a lot about uh, niche partitioning. This comes up again and again and again. And we talk about it within species quite a lot, where maybe you have uh, males eating one type of food and females eating another type of food, and that's sort of changing their morphology so they're not directly competing with each other. This is perhaps a more extreme version of that where you have these cannibalistic morphs uh, separating off from the rest of the population, and instead of eating what they usually eat, they're going after other salamanders and consuming them. And I suppose that's just a logical conclusion to niche separation, where you're eating the other niche and therefore expanding your own niche <laughs> yeah, it's like and the available resources to you. Taking competition to the next level rather than actually competing, just start killing and eating the main competitor, which is other individuals of the same species. Yeah. 
You see, you mentioned that there's this like cannibalistic morph and the main difference is that they grow these like horrendous teeth on their upper jaw, which allow them to start taking on larger, right. more dangerous prey. So they, they do tend to have slightly bigger heads. You know, salamanders are gape limited. So if you're going to be eating bigger things, i.e. other salamanders, you're going to need a bigger head to do that. Um, and they tend to be, there's another, doo -doo -doo -doo, there's another aspect to them. Oh, more sort of slender bodies. Oh. <laughs> Actually, they they have a very nice nice description. Cannibalistic morph individuals differ from typical morphs by their enlarged vomarine teeth, wider heads, long slender bodies, and tendency to consume conspecifics. <laughs> I.e., the cannibals are cannibalistic. The cannibals are cannibals. <laughs> oh my god, these cannibals are cannibals. Terrifying. And where is this in North Dakota, USA? So if you're yes. a barred salamander in North Dakota, USA, that's where you've got to be watching out. Yeah, basically. Um, so these guys wanted to work out... Ooh, they wanted to work out basically whether there were cannibalistic morphs in, in, this, in this area and what might be driving that, sort of testing this assumption a little bit testing this assumption that um, basically more more individuals, more conspecifics, more likely to have uh, cannibalistic salamanders there. Which would make sense if the cannibalism was as a response to there being, well, depending on which way you look at it, more competition or more prey avail availability of the specific prey right. that happens to be, you know, the other salamanders yeah yeah so you've got these two quite tightly connected things especially when your competitors become prey in some circumstances so they did this wonderfully wide-ranging sampling across 162 wetlands and thankfully they did find some cannibalistic ones um how many did they find okay so 162 sample sample sites 51 actually had salamanders that they were interested in and Four of them had these cannibalistic morphs in them. But what is really interesting here is it wasn't just a straight shot of, okay, the ones with more salamanders have uh, other ones with cannibals. They had a few sites that had um, very high uh, salamander relative abundance with the cannibals, but they also had a couple that didn't have the cannibals with very similar uh, relative abundances of salamanders. Equally, you had a couple that had very low salamander abundances, but still had cannibals present. Uh, cannibals present. Right, so, so it's there not wasn't a straightforward this straight story. Yeah. No, no, no. So basically there's this other thing playing into it that's, that's driving the appearance of this cannibalistic morph. Certainly it looks like, okay, it, it certainly does occur at high abundances, but what's explaining these, these lower abundances? And to cut a sort of long statistical story short, what it seems to be is these lower abundant salamander ones with the cannibals actually have very high abundances of this uh, flathead minnow, which fat is head. a f fathead. What did I say? Flathead? Yeah. Oh, fathead. Yes, fathead fat minnows. Fat yeah, in a yeah, different yeah. plane. In both planes, presumably. Yeah. Um, but basically, they're a, they're a bait fish. 
And so they've been introduced into these areas or may have escaped, or, you know, what have you. And they appear to be competing with the salamanders for their zooplankton. So in these circumstances where you've got a lot of minnows, you're going to have a lot less uh, prey for the salamanders. But equally, you have this situation where, oh, wait a second, if a salamander has decent, decent teeth, it could probably go after one of these minnows. And that's essentially what they're pointing at as being this, this alternative driver of this cannibalistic morph, these big heads and uh, pointy little teeth. So, okay, it can be driven by salamander presence, but also it can be driven by a different species, which is sort of interacting with the prey in a similar way as the salamanders. So did they actually check to see that these salamanders were eating fish, or was it just kind of assumed? No, they, they did have instances where they had the minnows um, were discovered inside the salamanders. Oh, wow. So they, they, it, I'm pretty positive it was confirmed that they were consuming them as well. Wow. Um, I'm looking for the mention in the paper, but can't see it, but I do remember reading that. Cool. The other thing they say is that they found some adults in uh, the lake, well, they call it Lake 21, the lake where they found the most cannibalistic juveniles they actually found some adults which they thought were grown-up versions of these cannibalistic larvae which they could tell were the um cannibalistic one because they were gigantic and they apparently had large cloacas which is another feature of this morph i suppose maybe that's that's connected to having ingested prey which is harder to digest i guess because zooplankton, I'm presuming that salamander can probably extract a lot of everything mm. from zooplankton. But when you yeah. start consuming bones and, and sinew and stuff, that might uh, lead to more waste product, perhaps? You need a bigger poo hole. Basically, yeah. Which is... And I've, know, I've found a the mention, a... They, they definitely had minnows in their stomachs. So Right on. Yeah. That's crazy. So... Uh... So what, this must be a mutation that just appears with some frequency, but for the most part, they don't do well unless they find themselves in a situation where there's suddenly this abundance of meaty prey, be it fish or fellow salamanders, for them to eat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I presume that it's just not selected for in some circumstances, and therefore there's ones that, that randomly get the mutation... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's. It could. It could be a scenario that it's um, sort of environmentally driven and, and doesn't have a. It's not like a genetic mutation, weirdly appearing and suddenly they have teeth. It's mm. perhaps all the salamanders have this uh, gene for these enlarged teeth, but some sort of environmental cue mm. or something's getting it to actually, actually occur. Right. Perhaps it's the case that when these salamanders are sitting at the bottom of these ephemeral pools, glancing up at the water's surface, and they see that there's a bunch of fathead minnows milling around, and they just get this sort of feeling deep down in their guts. This urge. And then they feel the teeth. The teeth, the teeth are like poking out suddenly. And all of a sudden, <laughs> they're equipped with the tools to kill. I think that's what happens. It, I mean, it could be. They, they're sort of saying there's, there's, a suggest, uh, there's a suggestion that is connected to um, 
more arid environments, that it is a response to um, aquatic environments that sort of come and go. They're more ephemeral. Mm. Uh, Like consuming larger vertebrate prey is probably more versatile scenario, you know, versatile foraging technique than just relying on one zooplankton community. So there might be something along those lines. Maybe if uh, the salamanders are getting, you know, they go through a prolonged period of, of very little food, plus a little bit of dehydration or something early on in their development, maybe that boosts the likelihood of them developing these teeth. I don't know. Mm. But uh, the point is, it's happening, and it isn't just prompted by intra-specific competition, but inter-specific competition as well. Pretty crazy how human beings are like, okay, right, we need some bait fish. These minnows are good. Um, oh, we'll just, you know, be it by accident or on purpose, they've stocked ponds with them. And what does Mother Nature do? It starts to create salamanders with gigantic teeth in order to eat them. And on yeah. a pretty, presumably on a pretty quick time frame, it would be really cool to experimentally put a bunch of minnows in a pond and just wait and see how long it takes for these morphs to start showing up capable of eating them. Yeah, so they did they have done experimental they have done experimental <laughs> experimental work, experimental work with the morphs um inducing this cannibalistic um this morph, cannibalistic morph by playing with population size, density and prey density. Um, so there is there is information there. I don't know how quickly it occurs, hmm. but I would suspect if it is a response to a varying environment, it's probably be got to be pretty quick. You'd think so, right? You know, like I mean, a generation sort of thing. Like yeah. okay, everything has the capacity to do it. It just needs to be prompted. Yeah, I think that's that, well. At least that would be my guess. Yeah, pretty awesome. I just enjoy it any time a seemingly benign animal has some crazy trick up its sleeve. I mean, yeah, you just look yeah. at these salamanders, you know, there's barred salamander, and they just look, barred tiger salamander, they just look so sort of chill, you know, they're not bothering anyone. And the next thing you know, they're growing cannibalistic teeth. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sweet. It's pretty cool. I bet you loads yeah. of people are familiar with these salamanders as well and just have no idea that they can do that. They just think of them as these like... Sort of genteel. Little peaceful beasts. Yeah. Very cool. So uh, anything else on uh, ambistoma cannibalism? No, I don't think so. I think, um, yeah, not much, not much real detail, detail from me. More just, uh, it's, a, it's a cool, unexpected, or at least unexpected to me, who is largely ignorant of salamanders, finding. And it's cool. It's been known about for a while, but this is a nice sort of addition to it. So, from a salamander which is showing some sort of new adaptation to a newly described salamander? Yeet. Yeah, so we got a species by week, and it is by Palacios Aguila, Cisneros Bernal, Arias Montiel, and Para Olia. 2020, this is like new, new, it's just come out. A new species of Balitoglossa from the central highlands of Guerrero, Mexico, published in, ironically, the Canadian Journal of Zoology. Canada's got an interest in Mexico's herpetofauna. They always have, so it makes sense to put it in the Canadian <laughs> Journal of Zoology. Um, 
But yeah, we basically, we were looking for a new species of salamander to go with this crazy, crazy um, cannibalistic salamanders. And last week, we well, last bi week, I should say, we were in Guerrero, Mexico, talking about a brand new species of night lizard, Lepidophyma inagoi. And so, you know, we already are accustomed to this area in Guerrero being highlands with high biodiversity, and we couldn't resist revisiting it to talk about a new salamander when we saw this paper. So, uh, up until 1983, there was believed to be only one species of salamander from Guerrero, which seems crazy to us now in the modern day that we understand the uh, Sky Island high endemism that is actually present yeah, in the region. Yeah, microendemism even. Yeah, that's it. So it wasn't until 1983 the second species was described by Pappenfuss and colleagues. That was Belita glossa hermosa. And now here we are in 2020 and this new species of Belita glossa is actually increasing the total to 16 species. So the reality is that Guerrero harbours a rich diversity of salamanders, and this new one is an absolute corker. So it was during recent field work, the team discovered an isolated population of salamanders on a little Sky Island-esque area, and they knew immediately they were a new species, and this paper describes it, and they've called it Belita Glossa, and this is a mouthful I'm about to butcher, so uh, yeah, apologies in advance, but Coaxtalahuacana. Belita glossa coaxtal aquacana, aka the coaxtalahuacan salamander. Now I went on YouTube, I went on Google, I tried to find a way because that is a that's a village. Um, I tried to find out how to pronounce that word and I couldn't find it anywhere. So yeah, tried my best. But uh, if you know how to pronounce <laughs> it, send it to us in a voice memo and maybe I'll play it on the podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can tell this new Belita glossa from its congeners because it's got a nice round nose and a lack of spots and this thing is pretty much jet black isn't it it's quite it's gorgeous striking. yeah little little 41 41 millimeter svl salamander and it is i described it as like a um a sort of globule of ink or something like that mm. um it's it's like a studio ghibli creature it is it's absolutely gorgeous it is. And it's got the adorable little hands of... Uh, a little climbing climbing salamander hands. Yeah, like the proper... Like, it's a yeah. plethodontid salamander, right? So yeah, it's got those like climbing hands. And apparently it's got a prehensile tail as well. So I, this thing is I mean, not it makes sense. It does have a long tail, which, judging by the pictures, looks almost as long as its body. Yeah, it's and got to fat come close. too. Do yeah. measurements for that? It just looks so well built. It just looks like it's yeah, ready it, for anything. Yeah, its its body is, if I'm reading, I think there's a typo there. I think that's meant to be SVL, not SLV. Is seventy seven percent of its body length. Wow. Yeah, I mean that looks about right. I'd say yeah, it's about right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Apparently, it's not it's completely adorable. jet black. When you see it in real life, it's actually got a, like a lighter brown color on its hands and lips. Um, and apparently, also it changes color. So, what? It can change, the patches on its I body can change between purpley and brown. They're not sure why. Um, oh, it's just, they just style. Yeah, they just noticed it's that just... when they were sort of uh, between taking pictures and whatever. Different times of day, the salamander would look slightly different. So that's kind of cool and interesting. But obviously not something that can be fleshed out to any degree at the moment, seeing as uh, we're only just now finding out this thing even exists. Um. But yeah, what else is there? This is uh, I really enjoyed this description actually. They uh, 
obviously you've got all the morphology stuff and the genetic stuff, which is essential and uh, very valuable to people who study this group. But then beyond that, they actually had quite a little bit of inf- well, I say quite a lot, quite a little, yeah, quite a little bit of information about the actual, <laughs> you know, behavior of the species and what's going on in the type locality. So, as I said, the species name refers to this small village of Coaxtal Ahuacan in Guerrero, which is where the species was discovered and it honors its inhabitants for their helpfulness and friendliness during the author's fieldwork which is really nice but beyond that this place sounds awesome it's a small mountain range there's humid oak forests the southward facing areas so it's on like it's like a plateau surrounded by lower elevation um, habitats and on this plateau the southward facing areas are actually pretty much cloud forest lots of tropical vegetation bromeliads sprouting on the trees it sounds great idyllic yeah it it really does and the specimen salamander habitat yeah literally prime arboreal salamander habitat as well right yeah they were found crawling at night on thin bushes near the edge of a small mountain stream about a meter above the ground after heavy rain um apparently they're pretty slow moving uh they wiggle their tails and use them to help them move among leaves and they actually, as I said earlier, have very strong prehensile tails. So um, when the first one was found, it was actually holding itself up on a leaf using its tail. So, yeah, the tails are pretty pivotal to the way they move. And as I said, it's living on this little sky island with drier, harsher habitats around. And the plateau is called the Sierra de Moquitlan. And, uh, yeah, it just looks like a nice little spot. I love plethodontid salamanders because... Do you remember when we first, we did an episode where they were like a focus of it a while ago, I think. And yeah, just the fact that there's like salamanders willing to climb bushes and trees in order to find prey is just really cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like we have a special appreciation for the creatures that surprise us. Yeah. And I suppose that helps the less you know about them. And that's why salamanders keep coming up as surprising but the idea of something that, that in my mind is entirely uh, like fossorial and semi-fossorial, living in amongst leaf litter and groveling around at the bottom of muddy ponds, to see this like perfect little clambering salamander with a prehensile t- tail, is, I mean, it's just a pure joy. I <laughs> love them. Pure joy for Ben. That's what I want. Yeah. That's all I can hope for for my friend is to see a salamander. <laughs> it just gives him pure, unadulterated joy. Even I mean, if just for an guy. instant. Yeah. This tiny little fella. It's wicked. Yeah, it's a really cool cool little thing. Um, so, yeah, great paper. Um, have a little Google. <laughs> well, try and spell the species name. I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to say it anymore. But, um, yeah, even the common name is hard. <laughs> the coaxial. A huacan salamander. Google it. Check it out. It's a nice little thing. I mean, man, you you look you you try to find out a correct pronunciation, and oftentimes you find it. Just this you time, do, yeah. no luck. No, sad. Um, so yeah, I think that's it. Salamanders. We've done a little bit there. Um, should we move on to the question that we had? Yes. Yes. Please do. Right I on. Think so you've got a little bit more more stuff on this than me, but. Yeah, you were the you were the uh, cannibal salamander guy. I'll be the. Uh, hey, you sneaks. got you got a you got a segue right? Yeah, 
We yeah, I do. Arboreal, so, arboreal salamanders, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so arboreal <laughs> salamanders using their tail to get around. But what about arboreal snakes? Do they have any adaptations? So the question was, uh, and this is from Emily O'Brien, who is our Patreon, so her Patreon question. What adaptations do larger arboreal or semi-arboreal snakes have to deal with blood rushing to their heads when they're heading down or to their tails when they're heading up? I assume that this isn't a big deal for small snakes because even if they're going up a tree, the overall distance from head to tail isn't very long and they presumably have a mostly pretty small circulatory system. But the larger they get, the more it must be an issue. Like in the videos of retics going up trees. So reticulated pythons, you've seen those videos where they like wrap themselves around the tree and then shoot upwards. Mm. I think that's what Emily's Yeah, yeah, yeah. To. It's like a, um, like a spring uncoiling and coiling as they go, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great question. It's actually a fascinating question. Uh, so thank you, Emily O'Brien, for that. And yeah, so I took to the scientific literature and the first investigation into blood pressure and how it might be used by arboreal snakes to ensure the blood doesn't just flow straight out of their heads and into their tails came way back in 1976. It was a short paper published in Nature by Harvey B. Lillywhite, Dr. Harvey B. Lillywhite, who is pretty much the authority on this subject even today and is a research focus of his. And um, in that paper, there were nine species of snake, one of which was arboreal, two were terrestrial, three were semi-aquatic and three were fully aquatic. And Harvey ran tests on these snakes to see firstly how high their blood pressure was under normal circumstances and then see how their blood pressure reacted to being tilted up. So their head was up and their tail was down. So the snakes were put in a tube and yeah, basically just like made to go pretty much vertical. Um, Seesawed around. <laughs> yeah, that's it. To see what happens yeah, because, yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a good question. And like Emily says, you'd think there must be some kind of blood pressure control going on. And mm -hmm. what was interesting was that the arboreal snake, which was Boiga dendrophila, the mangrove snake, big old cat snake, super cool, black and yellow, snaky. Um, and that one, sure enough, had the highest blood pressure of any of the nine snakes when it was resting. So initially, you know, it's, it's maintaining the highest uh, blood pressure in the body, just generally speaking. But also when it was tilted, so its head was in the air, its blood pressure actually increased noticeably. So this arboreal snake, as a reaction to being tilted, the blood pressure increases and that allows the blood in the brain, the blood pressure in the brain to be maintained. Terrestrial snakes showed a similar response to being tilted, but it was less pronounced. So they were able to um, increase the blood pressure to maintain the function of the brain when tilted, but just to a slightly lesser extent. It wasn't quite so dramatic. And that probably reflects the fact that although they do do um, vertical movements, it's less common, whereas, you know, a, a cat snake like Boiga dendrophila is going to be doing it all the time. Um, then we get on to the semi-aquatic species. Uh, they increase their blood pressure, but only very slightly. And the aquatic species actually completely lacked this adaptation. So they had lower blood pressure overall. And also when they were tilted, there was basically no reaction in their blood pressure. And this is presumably because when they're in water, the surrounding water will actually balance the pressure throughout their bodies. So they really don't need to worry so much about going vertical because there's not going to be those gravitational forces acting on their bodies. So mm -hmm. that's pretty awesome, right? The arboreal snake has higher blood pressure and also it reacts by increasing blood pressure when it's tilted. One cool thing the study also noticed is that 
in arboreal and terrestrial snakes, the heart is actually closer to the head and that reduces the blood pressure re required to maintain blood flow to the brain. Aquatic snakes will have their hearts much more central on the body, while in arboreal and terrestrial snakes, like I say, it's closer to the brain. So it's pretty yeah, cool. Wasn't there this like uh, the more arboreal was the closer it was to the head? It was like a like a gradient almost. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Generally speaking, that is the case. So yeah, we've got this pattern in arboreal and terrestrial snakes that their hearts are closer to their heads to make it easier to maintain blood pressure in the brain. The problem that you could see with that is that blood can actually begin to pool in the tail end because the heart is a long way up the body to keep it moving once it ends up down in the tail, but. More papers came out by Lily White in the 1980s, and according to those, the blood vessels in the tail end of snakes, which are terrestrial or arboreal, are actually quite rigid, and that stops too much blood entering where it could end up pooling away from the brain. So you have this combination of heart near the head, but also the blood vessels further down the body are very rigid to stop too much blood entering when gravitational forces mm. start to pull it down. Interesting. So the conclusion is yes, arboreal snakes have a few neat adaptations to withstand the gravi gravitational forces of climbing. They have higher blood pressure, but they also react to being tilted by increasing the blood pressure even further. And aquatic snakes, on the other hand, cannot withstand being tilted on land very well. So one of the snakes this was attempted on was Acrocordus arafere, which is the adorable elephant trunk snake we've talked about on the podcast before. Pretty cool. Totally yeah. aquatic. Bizarre species. Like weird granulated skin. Looks like a seal. Um, a in seal? Its, in its face. In its face. Oh, right. I was going to say, it's like when, since last, that would be the most unhealthy looking seal in the world if it had tiny granulated nodules on its skin. Yeah, I probably shouldn't like have said that directly after the granulated seal. Yeah, It I'd... looks like a seal oh, insofar as it's got really endearing eyes and face. Yes, it has a like puppy dog face it looks like form. It looks like it's going to cry. It's really cute. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was a Seymour and Aunt paper in 2004 and what they found was that the combination of a long distance between the head and the heart and the low blood pressure in elephant trunk snakes means that if you take the snake out of water and tilt it so it's heads up, it will very quickly pass out and it could even die. So, yeah, basically, if you're a yeah, snake, I mean, which is meant to be in the water, you've got to stay in the water or things are going to go bad, bad, bad. Yeah, it's, it's equivalent... Um, they, I think one of the papers had that anecdote of uh, for fighter jet pilots where they have those pressurized suits so it oh, maintains yeah. uh, more stable blood pressure throughout. So if you have your, was it negative G-force? No. I, what, whatever. One, one way of the G-force is sustained, causes you to black out, i.e. not enough blood to the head. The other way causes these red outs where you get too much blood to the head. And that's basically Blackout, what those arboreal out. snakes are doing. They they have a like pressurized blood system, so they're maintaining that blood pressure throughout. Whereas these poor these poor file snakes and elephant trunk snakes are trying to fly a jet. If you take them out of the water, trying to fly a jet without a pressurized suit, and <laughs> just tipping them one way is like uh, a human sustaining. <laughs> plus 5g force for a prolonged period of time it's just gonna end them the poor little guys i love that so if you were to try and create an equivalent of a human being flying a jet for a elephant trunk snake the equivalent would be 
coming out of the water and being gel- gently tilted upright. <laughs> yes, yes, they are. So, they are so geared towards being in the water, like we're so geared to not experiencing <laughs> high levels of g-force that that the results are, I guess, relatively similar. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I think I assume that these um, findings can be extrapolated to. Uh, reticulated pythons but i couldn't find anything specifically about them but i think it's probably safe to assume that similar mechanisms exist but yeah more research coming and actually um dr lily white's lab is still going and he's still researching these topics and i think still the um authority on the subject so perhaps there'll be some modern papers coming out we can keep an eye out for Mm-hmm. cool yeah right on so any other well first of all actually let me say thank you to emily o'brien for that great question and uh, yeah thank you if you want to be a patron and ask neat. a question you can just uh get onto patreon.com slash highlights so yeah let's move on to any other business you got any other business you know i've got some business uh do i have any other business um <laughs> no 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 i, no, I don't actually I... nil nil on the business front and that's okay nope so, first thing is a rattlesnake quiz. So, a little while ago, we asked people to send us in recordings of reptile noises, and we've had quite a few. And the most recent set came from Brandon Barassa. So, thanks very much, Brandon. And he's sent us four recordings of different rattlesnake species that he has had the opportunity to get up close and personal with. And Ben... I think it's only fitting that we do a multiple choice quiz to see if you can actually correctly identify any of these rattlesnakes to their rattles. How do you think your sort of rattlesnake specific rattle knowledge is, generally speaking? Do you back yourself? I think that my rattlesnake rattle sound specific knowledge is somewhere between zero and nothing. (laughs) Considering I I have never seen a rattlesnake with my own eyes, I've never heard a rattlesnake with my own ears. Have you so, never ever once? Okay, right on. Yeah, this this is this is pure. This is going to be pure instinct. <laughs> so this is and literally. If the, if the common names are out of whack with what I think uh, the names sound like, then it's really going to reveal um, some. I, I guess I guess problems with the common naming of these species. Well, I think for you to expect that the common names are going to in any way reflect the sounds that the rattlesnakes make is wildly optimistic you're going to get no clues (laughs) you're going to get no clues from that (laughs) oh we will see okay it's a throwdown okay okay just remember even if you get none right still still fine still appreciate you okay don't beat yourself (laughs) up okay so listen now to recording number one ready i'm gonna play it Well, to me, that, uh, oh, hmm, I don't think it's the Aatrox, I don't Not think the it's Aatrox. Horridus, I think it's okay. Ornatus or the other one, and to me that sounds like quite a, quite a small tail, I feel, uh, I'm, I'm feeling black-tailed rattlesnake, Crotalus ornatus. Okay, okay, so one Ornatus, alright, we'll let you know if that is right or wrong. Let's You're writing listen. this down, right? Because I ain't going to remember which I'm way it's going. It yeah, I'm writing it down. Did we mention explicitly the four things you were choosing between at the beginning? 
I don't think so, but I feel people can infer that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the options were Cretellus Aatrox, the Western Diamondback Rattlesnake, Cretellus Haridus, the Timber Rattlesnake, Cretellus Onatus, the Black Rattlesnake, or Cretellus Lepidus Clauberi, the Banded Rock Rattlesnake. Okay, number two. Very solid. Mm. Isn't it? That's no unrelenting. You couldn't ignore that. Oh, see, now my gut says that's got to be the timber rattlesnake. Horridus. Cretalus horridus. I think go or with horridus. your gut. Go with your gut yeah. in all, in all yeah. things. Um, my, my, when... my sort of one in the back of my mind is going, oh, maybe it could be an Aatrox. So. Oh, but okay. I'll go with horridus. Okay, Horridus, but maybe Aatrox. I'll put maybe Aatrox because maybe you could get half a point <laughs> if it was Aatrox. Okay, let's listen to number three. Ooh. Oh, that deeper. I would go with Aatrox. This one's Aatrox. But then maybe the maybe the deep reverberations is suggesting that it is uh, number four, the uh, the rock rattlesnake, because maybe it's in a little cave. Uh, oh. But I think I've just... Got- I think I've just got to go with gut and just go Aatrox. Okay, Aatrox. And if this one doesn't sound like rock the banded rock rattlesnake, then then everything's going to come crumbling down. I'm I'm actually happy with the way that's turned out. I feel like I feel like number the last one number 4 could be the banded rock rattlesnake. Okay. Okay, well then you you know prior to even listening to it you back yourself. Let's listen to it. Oh, do you think that sounds rocky? You think that sounds rocky? I think maybe. Well, I'm I'm feeling like a roddy rattle a a, ro- a, ro- <laughs> a rocky rattlesnake. I mean, it's maybe a little bit slimmer. Got to live that mm. Saxicola's lifestyle, right? Got to oh, fit into cracks. So perhaps that. it's a little bit a little bit lighter and a little bit of a finer rattle. Now, that is assuming that bigger rattlesnake is, is the one that's been recorded. I mean, obviously it could be a juvenile Aatrox for all I know and everything everything gets thrown out of whack. But that's, they're my guesses. That's what I'm going with. Okay, so you've gone for number one as Cretellus ornatus, the black-tailed rattlesnake. Yeah. I'm really, I regret to inform you that first one was in fact Cretellus horridus, the timber rattlesnake. Outrageous. I know. I'm shocked. I know. You gave it your best shot. Number two, you said horridus. <laughs> Horridus, Horridus, that has already gone, obviously, so you knew you were wrong. You said maybe Aatrox, that would have also have been wrong. Don't beat yourself up. Number two was actually Cretalus Ornatus, the black tail. Oh, so I just, I, I, I switched those, so there's still a possibility of getting something right. And in actual fact, Ben, you managed to get three and four both spot on. Three was Cretalus Aatrox, a.k.a. the Western Diamondback Rattlesnake, the big chonker. And uh, number four was the banded rock rattlesnake, Cretalus lepidus clauberi. Very, very, very cool grey. Kind of like, you know, grey banded kingsnake style rattlesnake. Um, very beautiful creature. So, yeah, you got two out of three. Hey. Sorry, you got two out of four, actually, right. You got 50%, which I'm, is pretty I'm, damn I'm good. I'm happy with that. I'm yeah. happy. Yeah, which, uh, yeah, that's better than the sort of statistical odds, which would have been one out of four. So... Well, yes, I suppose. Would it? Would it be actually one out of four? I mean, because I, I don't think so. Because each subsequent choice would decrease the choices I had. But they could. So but equally, it's contingent on what I picked before. Yeah, you're right. You could have. So zero it wouldn't be a chances. straight one in four. It'd be a little bit. 
It would actually be horrendously complicated to work out. But I, yeah, <laughs> you got two out of four, which is great. You actually did it. You smashed it. Um, and they were great, great recordings. So yeah, thanks Brandon for that, and uh, well done Ben. Now, when you're cruising through uh, the United States and you hear a rattle on your travels, you'll know which snake it comes from, more than likely. What's that on the wind? Ah, Crotala Satrox. It's been disturbed. <laughs> Two miles west. <laughs> uh, cool, so any other business? More, you said no. Okay, so we had an email from... Professor Eric Butler, who's been in touch with us a few times before, and he had some thoughts on the Dolo's Law podcast, um, which as you're going to have to remind me, Dolo's Law. Dolo's Law of irreversibility. Nothing to me. So it's like What's the that? rule that, generally speaking, if an animal evolves a trait, it's hard for it. Oh, it doesn't to go back. Evolve yes. the trait it had yes, previously. Yes, yes. So, like returning to uh, live birth from oh, sorry, returning to egg laying from live birth was the example that we used in sand boas, which is quite Absolutely. rare. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, Professor Butler's take was pretty good. Um, he said that it struck him that Dolo's law was probably proposed as a phylogenetic tool, since more since back in the day, phylogeny was all morphological, right? You could only look at what you could see; you couldn't actually oh. investigate the genes. Yes, so, okay. So he says, so for instance, if you had a set of species with enamel and dentine teeth and then some toothless taxa, you would know that none of the tooth taxa had evolved from the toothless taxa because the toothless taxa couldn't reverse tooth loss. In this regard, mm. re-evolving the characteristic requires a pretty tight definition of the characteristic. If you also had some tooth taxa that had teeth made some other way, those could potentially have evolved from toothless taxa that then needed teeth again, but couldn't re-evolve the old enamel and dentine system. He says, now, of course, we can use genetic methods to generate a phylogeny independent of morphology, and we can test whether this morphology-based rule works, which is a fantastic insight. I think it's pretty much spot on, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, uh, it is important to sort of have that, okay, a law proposed as something to make a way of thinking about something even possible, yeah. right? Because if, you, if you're not operating under some assumptions, you often can't, can't do anything. So it, it makes sense that uh, we can look at it and be like, oh, that's a, a oversimplification. In this case, this is good. Because that's what assumptions are. You have to have some to, to even move. <laughs> yeah, precisely. There's always going to be exceptions. So, yeah, yeah, I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah, you know, some people say I've been too harsh on Dolo, you know. But I stand by it. I stand by it. I think Dolo... <laughs> I don't respect Dolo, all right? <laughs> no, no, Come at me, Dolo. I do, I do, I do. <laughs> and I do think that's a really good insight. Um, and yeah. I want to see some more Dolo's Law stuff coming out. I could do a Dolo follow-up. One other quick note from Professor Butler was that uh, Sci-Hub, he'd also sent us some emails about like racial disparities in science and the fact they exist um, as a follow-up to the brief discussion we had about Black Lives Matter. And um, basically just kind of saying that of all the institutions in America, like often it's minority institutions where like predominantly people are racial minorities that are less funded and therefore have less access to uh-huh. literature. Yeah. So he's just kind of highlighting that as a point, which is, um, yeah, a point well made. And I think, uh, yeah, he alludes to our discussion of Sci-Hub and how beneficial that can be in such situations in terms of just opening science up for everyone and the kind of good that that does, despite yeah. the fact it's not strictly above board. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, good point. Well made. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much, uh, Professor Eric Butler. And um, 
I think that's just about it, really, from me in terms of uh, any other business. Um, awesome. Okay. Yeah, I think that's been quite a neat little episode, little short one. Um, yeah, thoroughly enjoyable, though. Enjoyed hearing about these cannibalistic salamanders. And, uh, yeah, nice to have some good questions to get stuck into as well. So Yeah, and an adorable newly described species of salamander as well. I mean, what what more could you want? I think now we've done a bit of salamander stuff, we need to circle around and maybe look at some tortoises or something. Although we did do that tortoise paper recently, didn't we, where the tortoises were being sniffed out. That was quite cool. Yes. Tortoise. I'm very interested in what tortoises do. Like, where do they go? What do they do? What do they... What, what are they? I, I saw one, a video of one playing playing with a with a football and a dog the other day. Oh, really? What was going on in its little mind? Yeah. I think it was probably livid. I think they're it usually did. livid. When there's a dog about, I think they're livid. They usually just attack stuff. Well, it was attacking the bull, not the dog. I want to make mm. that very clear. The dog was it just did. a bystander. The bull was yeah, the main maybe. enemy. The bull was in its sights. <laughs> uh, You've yeah, had so a paper come I... out about uh, elongated it... tortoises, right? And their spatial ecology. We should look at that. Right. Preprint. Preprint cool. out on their, their special ecology is currently in review. Okay, well how then that... far into review, I'm not sure. Alright, well that's going to form a basis for an episode, definitely though, because uh, elongated tortoises are very close to my heart. Yeah. Well, they, they, they're a good species. They're interesting. Hmm. They are. They'll walk around yeah. Boulder. <laughs> Excellent. Wicked. So, yeah, thanks very much for listening. And if you want to get in touch with us, if we've got anything wrong, if you think my description of the circulatory uh, advantages that our boral snakes have over their aquatic cousins is woefully lacking, then send in some more information. And, uh, yeah, similarly, if you have any corrections on anything else we've described, we'd be very grateful to hear it. If you want to get in touch, you can get in touch with us, herphighlights at gmail.com or through Facebook or Twitter. We're on both. And, yeah, I think that's about it, really. Awesome. Well, I guess it's just uh, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. 